Welcome into the Deep Reporting Journalism Pod. Before we get going, if you want to check out any previous episodes, episodes of the Vote 2018 podcast, or to sign up for the Morning Rex newsletter, head over to firstamendmentmedia.com. In today's show, I'm joined by Shane Bauer of Mother Jones to discuss the story called I Went Undercover with a Border Militia. The link to the story is included in the description, and I highly recommend you read the story first and then come back here to listen to the show. Let's get the show started with Shane Bauer, and I went undercover with a border militia. This is a November-December 2016 article from Mother Jones, but I think it's still relevant, probably just as relevant today as it was a year and a half ago. First thing I want to get for you from you is... This story of of embedding with a border militia, where did you get the idea? Where did you find this story idea? How did you go about putting this together before you even went down with them? Um, I had, um, I don't know. I mean, one day I was, uh, there was the, the news of the, um, the Bundy Ranch takeover had, was still fairly recent. So that was a, a time when um, a bunch of uh, rancher, the federal government uh, was basically taking back or kind of, you know, um, stating their authority over some public land that ranchers were using and uh, telling them they couldn't, they couldn't graze their, their animals on the land. And as a reaction, uh, this is in Nevada, and as a reaction, uh, the ranchers and a bunch of militias from around the country came and uh, basically had a standoff with federal authorities um, saying that they, the land was theirs, they had the right to use it. Um, and I had just kind of going off that was wondering um, how it was that these militias from around the country were mobilizing. I hadn't heard of militias in quite a long time. Um, they were a thing in the 90s. Um they uh, kind of the militia movement really started in the 90s under Bill Clinton uh, as a reaction to his attempts to um, impose gun control. Um, and after the Oklahoma City bombing, they uh, really uh, had a massive decline. And then Bush became president and uh, they kind of disappeared, um, you know, with a, with a Republican president. They had less of a kind of uh, reason to oppose the federal government. Uh, but the, those militias at that time were, were kind of very localized uh, groups. And this thing that was happening in Nevada seemed different. So I just kind of started looking around online, really, um, just Googling militias and uh, looking on Facebook. And uh, I saw that there were, um, for one, there had been a, a huge spike in uh, the number of militias uh, pretty much right after Obama became president. Um and there was uh, a kind of new type of militia. It was a new generation, uh, younger generation than, than the previous militias. And uh, they, so a lot of them kind of um, saw themselves as a national movement. Um, and so, you know, I kind of was just looking around, seeing uh, where there were militia groups. And I found people at least claiming to be militia groups in uh, nearly every state. And uh, then I I opened a Facebook a new Facebook page uh, with using my real name, but it wanted a page that was separate from my personal page just for the purposes of kind of investigating these groups. And uh, I 
essentially just followed a bunch of militia Facebook pages and sent friend requests to members of those groups. And uh, within a couple of days, I had, I think, several hundred uh, friends on Facebook that were somehow affiliated with the militia movement. And uh, so, you know, anybody who would look at my page um, without looking too deeply would probably assume that I'm also a part of that movement. And it kind of just went from there. Um, I was I was interested in the, the kind of nationalized groups uh, but I also spent some time, I actually started the project by, uh, um, embedding with, uh, a militia in California. Um, it was kind of a way for me to, I live in California, so it was a way for me to kind of test the waters, get a sense of that world before jumping into these groups that were, uh, seemed much more serious in a lot of ways that were mobilizing to places like the Arizona border. In a lot of your previous work as well, you've embedded yourself um, into the topic of the story or whatever. And uh, so, for example, the for-profit prison story is a, a yeah. great read. Why do you think it's so important to get in and get on the ground and experience this stuff before you write about it? Um, I mean, I'm really interested in uh, kind of understanding these worlds, not just kind of... Um, you know, exposing tidbits of, of news. Um, and I think it's very difficult to do that without really spending a lot of time in them. Um, I like to, you know, get a sense of who the people are who are involved, what are their um, the kind of complexities of them. These, you know, there's no, no story that's black and white, but it's easy to write black and white stories when you're kind of writing about them from a distance. And, you know, I want to to try to portray uh, the people that are involved in these things. I tend to write about, um, you know, stories that I think are serious social issues. Um, they're not necessarily people who I'm, the people I'm spending time with are generally not people who I see as kind of victims. But at the same time, they're three-dimensional people. And um, I think for us to really understand things like militia movements or prisons, we have to really kind of, know the uh the many dimensions to, to life inside of them and how people end up in these places and what they do when they're there so let's let's go in then and talk about who, who are these people who are the three percent united patriots i want to remind people listening to this that this i did this story before trump was president so in a sense this is another a different era um this was a time when uh you know there was kind of a lot of uh, almost hysteria in a certain segment of the right about Obama. Uh, people at that time were, you know, there was, wasn't as much of a kind of overt white supremacist movement as there is today uh, in America. Uh, people weren't saying, you know, that uh, they don't like the president because he's black. Um, they said they don't like him because he's implementing Sharia law or he's trying to get the UN to invade the United States or he's trying to take their guns away and, uh, or he's, behind Black Lives Matter, which they saw as a terrorist organization. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of people that were kind of pulled into this movement uh, who generally uh, felt strongly, uh, had strong feelings against the federal government for one reason or another. Um, a lot of them blamed the federal government for their own uh, kind of personal struggles, which tended to be economic. Um, these are mostly working class people mostly white though not exclusively um and uh you know people who 
they talked about when I was with them how you know they their situation was better at one point. Um, so they they viewed themselves as disenfranchised, whether they were in reality or not. Um, a lot of them, a good portion of them, were military veterans as well. Um, so I think you know, in kind of generic sense, there were two main kind of groups, uh, segments of people who went to the militia. One was kind of uh, alienated, uh, kind of working class white people generally from suburbs, um, some from the country, generally not big cities. Um, and then there were military veterans, um, who, you know, had, uh, fought in Iraq or Afghanistan and, uh, came back home and also felt alienated and were looking for, uh, something that gave them that kind of sense of meaning and camaraderie the military gave them. And the militia, you know, is essentially a military organization. They train. Um, and when they join the militia, the military veterans would have quite a bit of status. Um, and then they go out to places like the, the border in Arizona and uh, are kind of you know, doing missions and operations like they would do in Iraq or Afghanistan, going out at night in trucks uh, with weapons, uh, kind of searching for people um, out in the desert. And, it, you know, it was exciting for, for a lot of them. Some people, when they come back from Iraq or Afghanistan or they get out of the military, they they find jobs in areas that can still give them that excitement, whether it's like wildland firefighting or I, I was a reporter in Montana for a little while. Uh, the smoke jumpers up there, they go into law enforcement, things like that. Do you notice from the people that you were embedded with, is there a difference in personality or, or differences between them and the people that just go in and kind of find that sort of rush or that feeling in a, in a regular job? Or is it sort of by circumstance that they end up there? That's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I'm not as familiar with the people you're talking about, but it does seem in, in a, you know, there were times that I felt hanging out with these people like uh, I could have seen them totally going a different direction um, especially actually the people who are not uh, members of the military you know they uh, kind of feel a sense of that things in society are off um, they have a frustration with the government um, and you know I could imagine them uh, going in some into some left-wing group instead of a right-wing group and it's in some ways it seems a bit random that you know these people just kind of fall into a meet somebody who's a member of a militia and then next thing you know they're training um you know in the in the woods or or in the you know mountains in colorado um but you know i think across the board whether they're the military people or not they uh they all seem to be really kind of seeking out this sense of like brotherhood. You know, they call each other brother a lot, this kind of sense of meaning um, and a sense that they're uh, kind of defending the country. Uh, you know, it, it felt almost like they um, were people who, you know, one of them worked in a subway, for example. Um, you know, it seemed that he, he, he had been in uh, Afghanistan, came back, was working in a subway um, seemed very dissatisfied with his life. And then he found something that made him feel that rather than just being a kind of 
um, you know, just cast aside by, by the military and society in a way. Uh, he was out there defending the frontier. Um, and, you know, it's kind of as if they made this story that uh, they were actually in a dangerous war zone on American soil. So they felt that their lives were, were meaningful again. What was their relationship like with local law enforcement? Now, I know in the article you mentioned the encounter with the Nogales Police Department officers, and it, it didn't seem like they had any problem with what was going on. What, what was What is the relationship between these militias and Border Patrol or the county sheriffs or police departments? What is that? That moment that you mentioned was was interesting because we were uh, we'd been out in this on the base. They essentially had a, a base out in the desert, really far out um, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a small military base. There's people patrolling uh, patrolling it with semi-automatic weapons. Um, people standing watch all night long, and uh, some people went into town to get some supplies, food and things like that. So I rode with them. So we go to Walmart in Nogales, Arizona. And, uh, a couple of the guys go into Walmart and, uh, the rest of us stay outside and the kind of highest ranking militia member in the group as he's going to Walmart tells us to stand, watch, uh, guard the truck essentially. So the guys I'm with, you know, pull out their weapons and stand around the truck, their backs to the truck, looking out over the parking lot. So we're standing there armed in a Walmart parking lot. And uh, after a little while, a man approaches us uh, and shouts for us to pull our we- put our weapons down, puts his hand on his uh, hip. He has a gun, and it's apparent that he's a, a police officer, an undercover police officer. As soon as he says that, a bunch of police cars pull up. We put our weapons down, and they approach us. It's a very tense situation. But uh, they ask us you know, who we are, what we're doing, and the guys I'm with, explain that they're members of a, of a militia and that we had come down to um, to what they said was uh, to be the eyes and ears of the border patrol, you know, to look for uh, people crossing the border. And very quickly the dynamic changed and the police officers were uh, thanking us for the work we were doing. Um, they were, you know, telling us that, you know, if we find water bottles in the desert, we should destroy them. And, uh, you know, just kind of uh, became very cordial. Uh, another time, we actually interacted quite frequently with the Federal Border Patrol. They would come to the base, bring donuts for the for the militia, um, and just kind of hang around. And one time we were out at night, um, combing through a section of desert in groups of three uh, in, the, in the darkness, trying to find anybody who might cross at night. And uh, there was an encounter between the Border Patrol and the militia. The Border Patrol had, through their, um, uh, I guess, uh, infrared uh, technology, they saw, you know, that we were using night vision. And they didn't know, you know, if we were, you know, cartels or or who we were. So they approached uh, one of the militia groups and they had a, a face off for a for a moment um, where they're pointing their guns at each other. And I approached this group right after that had happened and the border patrol were there. I assumed that they were going to tell us to leave, but instead uh, we all gathered with them. And one of them uh, told us that he was an intelligence officer and uh, started telling us where we should go to find people crossing the border. And he told the, 
the leader of the militia that uh, before before we come back, like before they leave Colorado and come down to Arizona, they should get in touch with him so he can give them an unauthorized brief. Um, the border patrol start playing with the guy's weapons. I mean, it was um, it wasn't only that they were friendly with each other, but it was as if the border patrol was kind of using the militia uh, to kind of do their job for them. I mean, is that legal, or what's the authority there? Like, what what were you guys supposed to do if you found people crossing the border? Uh, it was never fully described to me what what I was supposed to do if I found somebody, but my understanding was that we were supposed to call the Border Patrol. Um, and then the Border Patrol would come and, and grab the person. And we had a, you know, a pretty... Uh, fairly sophisticated radio network uh, that would radio back. We could, from any any of the places where we were, we could radio back to our base, and the base could then radio to the Border Patrol. Um, but, you know, when we'd go out on these missions, there were, I was in the, I remember being in the back of a truck with this guy who had been a sniper in Iraq uh, on a number of tours. And, uh, you know, we get in the truck and, and he is, is super amped up. I mean, he's, you know, as saying, um, you guys ready to go hunt some Mexicans and stuff like that. And, you know, and then there's people also in the truck who, uh, have no military experience. And it's, it's not hard to imagine, you know, a situation in which we're going through the desert. Somebody jumps out from behind a bush and runs and, you know, shots are fired. Wow. <laughs> that it it, it all that didn't happen while I was there. Yeah, no, exactly. Run into anybody? It, it it just seems it seems like the whole thing is so wild, like so wild west, unauthorized, yeah. like off the books sort of thing. Like, is that that can't be legal, right? That the border patrol would be just using a random militia group. I don't know. This it all. <laughs> The whole story seems like too too uh, too crazy to believe, but these groups are out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the legality of these groups is a big question. Um, they essentially say that uh, that you know the Constitution allows for um, for militias, um, and they kind of uh, say that they're essentially you know continuation of the militia movement in the uh, you know time of the American Revolution. Um, but their kind of characterization of that militia movement is, is, uh, is very skewed. I mean, they, they believe that the early kind of, uh, militias were, uh, groups that were defending, uh, kind of local areas against the power of the federal government. And really the opposite is the case. Militias were regulated by the federal government. Uh, they were often used by the federal government, um, to, um, you know, fight, in Indian wars, um, militias also uh, uh, tried to hunt down, you know, escaped slaves. Um, and there was, you know, there the, there was a very, uh, the members of the militia for a while, people were, were, men were forced to join the militia. They had, it was mandatory. And uh, there was so much frustration with um, this kind of mandatory enlistment in the militia that a lot of states essentially figured out how to, um, to end the, you know, requirements that, that men join the militia. And the way they did this is that they created something called the unorganized militia, which basically meant that you could join the organized militia, which is what became the National Guard, 
or you could join the unauthorized, uh, unorganized militia, which was uh, meant that you did nothing. Um, and so, on in the, on the books, you know, men between I think eighteen and forty—I don't remember the years exactly—are still members of the unauthorized, uh, unorganized militia. The militia, the militia movement of kind of modern time, have taken this and said, "We are the unorganized militia." You know, we uh, we're just kind of. Um, you know, enforcing the, the law. But there are, we also have laws uh, state to state that uh, ban, that make paramilitary organizations illegal um, and, uh, you know, training in military training in groups illegal. But none of these laws have ever been enforced against these kind of modern militia movements, uh, possibly because, you know, there has been a fear in the federal government um that kind of uh, goes back to the time of, of Waco when the federal government um, killed many, many people um, when they were going after a kind of armed group that had, had hold itself up in Waco, Texas. And uh, it seems that since then there has been a kind of fear of repeating a massacre like that and uh, getting caught in a standoff with armed citizens so the federal government has mostly kind of been hands off with these groups since then. As far as the the people that are in these groups, the ex military people, the veterans that are in these groups, is it almost like it's sort of like they're 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 it's almost like medication for PTSD. I mean, they're putting themselves in these situations that resemble the life they used to live, even though pretty clearly. You know, there there's no part of the United States that really is a war zone. You know, they're trying to they're trying to like replicate this life that they used to have. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, and it's almost like they're they're creating a story that is kind of making the situation much more seem much more dangerous than it is. Uh, they you never hear them really talking about uh, immigrant families crossing the border. In their view, they're not going after those people. They're uh, defending the U.S. against drug cartels, also uh, ISIS crossing the border. Um, and, you know, members of drug cartels do smuggle drugs across the border. Um, but the majority of people that are crossing the border are, you know, regular people who are trying to come to the U.S. Um, but it gets almost comical sometimes, you know, hearing the, the ways that they, uh, they kind of... Um, paint the world around them when they're down there to seem like basically everybody who is brown is kind of a member of a drug cartel. I remember uh, one guy, he was up on a hillside with a rifle standing watch over some other groups that were down in the desert. And there's a, it was a small kind of village. And uh, he said he was watching through a scope, uh, a man who would uh, come and go from a house. And uh, then the militia, truck drove past him and he went and hid um so to him that was evidence that this guy's a member of militia now imagine that you're uh living in arizona uh you're mexican mexican american and you see a group of white men in camouflage with guns piled in the back of a shirt pickup truck driving through the town that might also be a reason to hide you know i mean there's uh there's many things that could be happening there but uh every kind of sign that people were nervous around them or afraid of them was to them a sign that they were uh, members of a drug cartel. That had to have been like 
every interaction like what was the interaction like with with white people down there i mean did the did did you guys have any interactions with you know ranchers or anyone else down there by the border did they like these people around or were they indifferent or what was that like i was never in a situation where we ran into uh people other than you know border patrol or police um I did hear them talk about uh, some other people who went into town, went to the Walmart, said that um, uh, some people had white white people had approached them and you know thanked them for what they were doing and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, I know that there was a, a house that they uh, that was kind of in the area that where the base was. There was like a small community of ranchers. Um, I believe though that these. Uh, were latino ranchers but i'm not certain but um they would watch this house like they would go up on the hill and uh stand watch over it videotape it um you know they they also believe that this was a kind of um drug cartel house so they were surveilling essentially some you know just regular or some american citizens who live there that's part of the part of the whole thing you were talking about, like sort of inventing this story to suit their what they want going on in their minds. Right. Wow. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of these guys? Destroyer, Bull, Yoda. A lot of a lot of names here. Uh, probably some interesting interesting people going on down there in the uh, in the militia group. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about who those who these people are and and on a on a personal level? Yeah. I mean, are these jerks? Are these you know, if you're talking to somebody one on one, are they you know, do they seem decent? Obviously, you know, we know now as some of these groups are coming more out into the open that they're not necessarily always the highest quality uh, human beings. But yeah. tell us a little I bit mean, about them. Well, first, my interactions with them were. With, they had the assumption that I was a member of the militia. So, um, you know, it's probably different interaction that other people would have. Um, so, you know, destroy, they all had these names, you know, they don't use their, the regular names. They have these kind of militia names. This guy called himself destroyer was, um, uh, Swiss actually. He was born in Switzerland, grew up in the U S and, um, you know, he's kind of a, kind of a dorky, early twenties guy. Um, and his friend, uh, Jaeger was, um, born in Germany, uh, and would kind of make a lot of jokes of, uh, a lot of kind of Nazi jokes actually. And, um, seemed to be a, a Nazi sympathizer. Um, and you know, they would kind of just like the two of them would sit around the fire and, uh, talk, share stories about how the, Mexico is invading the U.S. and they, they just have all these kind of conspiracy theories and um, um, kind of invented stories um, about, you know, the, the Mexican uh, Air Force flying into U.S. territory and Obama orders the U.S. Air Force to stand down and he's letting Mexico invade the U.S. and this kind of stuff. Um, and then and then you have people like Bull, who um, was from Alabama. He... Uh, he would tell stories about how he um, would accost uh, Mexicans in Alabama. So he was part of a group uh, that was uh, 
I forget what they called themselves exactly off the top of my head, but it was something like the Alabama border keepers or something. There's no border in Alabama. So what they would do is, is go after uh, who they thought were illegal immigrants. Um, so he would, you know, call the police on uh, random immigrants at gas stations, um, uh, try to get take their IDs. Um, he, you know, believed that he had the, the authority to arrest uh, illegal immigrants. Um, he would kind of talk about how, uh, like, he was the guy I was mentioning earlier who was uh, watching over this, um, this village and watching this guy through his sight, you know, going back and forth between the house. And, uh, you know, he would say things like, you know, if our hands weren't so tied by the government, I could have, you know, taken care of this situation and take this guy off. You know, he just kind of regularly makes comments about wanting to kill immigrants. Um, you know, there's, in a way, the, the strange thing about the militia is that uh, in a certain way, it seems that um, it was kind of reining in uh, people who seemed like loose cannons. There was a, a man, for example, who told me that he joined the militia because he was preparing for the day that the UN would invade America and he wanted to be able to kill as many UN troops as possible. And he also believed that there were undercover UN troops in the U.S. So it seems to me like this this is the kind of story that you could imagine turning into a mass shooter scenario where he somehow believes that there's these people who are, you know, uh, invaders and it's his duty to kill them. You know, you have people with these various kind of fantasies and then the militia, you know, the militia does not want these guys, the, the leadership of the militia does not want them just to go off and start shooting people at random. So in a way, they're controlling them. But at the same time, they're kind of feeding their their fantasies of, uh, the, you know, they're part of some kind of revolution in America. Um, so it's very kind of, um, uh, you know, a double-edged situation um, where, you know, it's hard to say, are they pulling them in or are they feeding them and feeding their kind of paranoia? And, and there are examples of, of militias and members of militias who have gone out and, you um, committed terrorist attacks have, uh, have murdered people. Um, you know, so it's, and you know, in, in this time that I wrote the story under Obama, there were some, there were hundreds of militias in America that were training, you know, and now we have this situation we have today where we have Trump as president. We have, uh, a much more emboldened white nationalist movement, And you have all of these men who are, who are trained and ready for, um, some kind of like, civil disturbance and these guys now uh you know they're not as focused on the federal government now but they're focused on uh kind of protesters and i've, I've been to rallies uh where the the alt-right uh came to to berkeley california and uh there were huge street brawls um they're really bloody and there were militias there they, they didn't have their guns but uh you know, they were basically the security for these kind of um, overtly white supremacist groups. So the intention of the a lot of these groups has has sort of changed a little bit in the past year plus. Yeah, yeah. Some of them also showed up at, uh, you know, previously at um, Ferguson um, with arms, you know, um, and in the South also. Um there have been all right rallies where uh, militia members show up with weapons. 
we, we, we think about Charlottesville and, and places like that. Are these the same groups? Is it just some people in these groups that overlap? Um, wh- what is the connection between these groups that we're seeing on TV now in these news stories versus the groups that you trained with either in California or down there in Arizona when you went yeah. down there? Are, are these the exact same groups or just like people from the groups? Um, I mean, this kind of far right is very fractured. It's not, um, you know, these people fight each other constantly. The alt-right is, is a different thing than the militia movement. I think the alt-right are, um, they're much more focused on uh, kind of the narrative and shaping the narrative around race and uh, bringing in young people. Um, and in some ways, I think they... Um, are more dangerous they're more effective i mean they're kind of on college campuses and uh influencing the kind of uh, more educated and the militia they're really about guns you know their uh their obsession is about you know the right to bear arms and fear that the government's going to take their guns away um they i haven't seen um i mean granted i haven't been paying as close of attention uh to the militia as i was when i did that story but I have not seen that militia members are going over to the alt-right or kind of uh, over neo-Nazi groups. But what I have seen is that, um, you know, they go to the same events. Uh, they'll provide security. And they say that they're, um, I, I taught actually at one rally in, in Berkeley, I ran into the head of the California militia that I had trained with for months. And uh, I talked to him. You know, and he said, we don't we don't support these guys. Uh, they're talking, but we're just here to make sure, you know, nobody gets hurt. So they kind of have this way of, like, distancing themselves from them, but yet they're still there protecting them, you know. But when he, um, when he saw you at Berkeley, he knew you were a journalist by then, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd spoken to him, actually. I reached out to him uh, before... I did the story um, before we published the story, and I, I told him I was a journalist, and I interviewed him over the phone. What was the reaction to people from him or whoever else you told as you're getting ready to publish or as you're writing this? Hey, by the way, I'm a, he, I'm a journalist. Well, he, his reaction was, oh, now I see why you just disappeared, because he was trying to get me uh, to have a kind of higher role in the militia, and I was kind of trying to avoid that. Um, and there were also people, he told me some of the higher people were, had come to him because they were suspicious. He was, this one guy in particular was suspicious of me. And he asked, uh, he asked for permission to do a background check on me, which is bizarre to me. I don't really know what that means. I mean, <laughs> he could have pulled his phone out of his pocket and Googled my name if he wanted to. I don't know what a background check entails more than that, but apparently he didn't do that. Um, so then I just kind of disappeared and then, you know, uh, called him and said, hey, I'm a journalist. And then it all made sense to him. Uh, the, the head of the 3% United Patriots, who was in Arizona, I also reached out to him, asked for an interview, and he also agreed. Um, and he kind of, you know, he didn't really uh, say much about the fact that I was with them. Um, I told him, yeah, it was this guy, um, the one from California who was there. You know, he didn't, uh, he seemed just kind of happy to get publicity, honestly. Yeah, is it almost like they think that that's a good, that that was a good thing? Like, oh, okay, so this guy, this guy knows what we're doing now, and he's going to get our word out. 
Yeah, and even when the story came out, um, you know, I, I watched on that Facebook page that I created uh, for the reaction to it. A bunch of them blocked me, so I don't, I didn't know how they were reacting. But the reaction that I did see uh, seems that people actually kind of liked the story, which I was generally surprised by. Um, you know, they this is this this is what they do, and I just showed what they did. You know. <laughs> Uh, I think they, uh, you know, liked that they were uh, being recognized in a way. You were just reporting what happened, and depending on what you think about that, you either thought that that was made them look horrible or made them look good, depending on yeah. who you are. I mean, and you know, I'm not going to say I was reporting neutrally. I don't know if that's even possible for anyone to do. I was very critical of them, um, and I think that probably for most readers comes across in the story. Uh, I also don't, you know, um, uh, I always, I actually tried very, it was, it was much more difficult in this story than the prison story that I did to kind of, uh, paint these people in a more three-dimensional way because I didn't have, you know, I spent like a week with them and I wanted to kind of talk about more about like their background and stuff like that. So I would spend days just digging through their Facebook histories to find something but most of them were just posting memes, you know, and there was nothing, there was like so little that I could kind of find to like make them more complex. So I did what I could with what I had, but, um, you know, I was definitely not trying to kind of create a caricature out of them. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I was certainly critical of what they were doing. And, and knowing now what we know about, uh, about Facebook and everything over that time period. I wonder how many of those memes, if you went back and looked, were maybe uh, shared or re- reposted by some unsavory bot accounts. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the it was ama- just the Facebook aspect of doing this story. I didn't write about much, but uh, it was really interesting to have you know my own Facebook uh page and then this one and to see the difference in reactions to the same event like the san bernardino shooting for example i mean uh it was it was like people were reacting opposite ways you know to, to certain events and and the, the websites and the blogs they were sharing things i'd never heard of before you know um it was just so obscure and i actually before i published the militia story um I finished my time actually with the militia. Then uh, we published this uh, story that I did about private prisons where I was undercover. Um, it was a big story, got a lot of attention, never showed up in the militia world. Um, nobody said, hey, this is that guy, you know, because they don't, they don't read the regular news. I mean, they think they believe that it's all fake and uh, they only trusted these kind of obscure sources that were talking about chemtrails or Obama imposing Sharia law or Muslim training camps and just, you know, off-the-wall stuff. And if they did, like you were saying with your quote-unquote background check, like if they had done, if they had paid attention at all to any of that, they would have known exactly who you were. Yeah, they just Googled my name, yeah. And, and, but it doesn't even register if they're not... Right. I mean, I, I would imagine yeah, it's so strange because they're so paranoid in a way, you know, and they're uh, they kind of have this idea that, you know, the government's out to get them and all this stuff. But they don't have 
do the kind of basics of, of security, you know, to make sure that they w- their security was doing things like, uh, you know, at the base they would put bacon and some pork in every meal because they thought it would keep out Muslim infiltrators, you know. It's just this weird, silly stuff that they do. And uh, in the meantime, there's people easily, infl- I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I assumed that there were other infiltrators there while I was there. I'm also assuming that not a lot of them had uh, Mother Jones up as their homepage when they opened <laughs> yeah, yeah. up the 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 yeah. uh, internet um, browser. But yeah, I mean, so at the same time, you know, they're they're so confident that you know they say like we're not doing anything illegal. You know, let them come if they want to come. Like, what are they? You know, they know they were so confident the government is not going to kind of push back against them that they were almost uh, not not concerned about. Um, anyone infiltrating well and when when border patrol is happily interacting with them like i guess i can't blame them for assuming that right right now as we wrap up here what are some final takeaways that you have whether it was coming out of being down there with them or maybe in looking in the rearview mirror a year and a half later what are some takeaways that you have from this story i mean some something that i heard a lot when i was uh working on this story and just reading up on, you know, other things that people had written about the militias was there was a way that people kind of almost laughed them off. Like uh, these are kind of grown up boy scouts. um, And it was like, people didn't take them seriously, which always struck me as, as honestly a kind of racist uh, position because you cannot imagine that a same kind of thing being said if it was a group of, you know, black men training out on national park land or Muslims. Um, and, you know, that kind of um, lack of concern about these uh, kind of far-right paramilitary groups uh, openly training in the U.S. has put us in a situation where, you know, we're in a much more serious situation now than we were before. Um, we've had kind of... Um, open brawls in American cities, um, you know, between American citizens, there's been uh, people stabbed. Um, somebody was killed in Charlottesville and, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that the militia is kind of ready to start a war or anything like that, but, you know, if a more serious conflict was, was to emerge, uh, we have many, many highly trained, uh, groups that, you know, the, it's pretty clear which side would, would come out on top at this point in a, in a kind of street confrontation situations. Which uh, is exactly what they've been saying that they're preparing for in the first place. Right. Where can we find your work? What's on the horizon? What's next for you? I know um, you, you do more of the, this long-form stuff, so maybe it's not tomorrow or next week, but what's what's on the horizon for you, and where can we follow you? Um, you can always find me on Twitter. Um Shane underscore Bauer. Um, I, you know, write for Mother Jones Magazine, although I was just um, on leave for a year uh, finishing a book, uh, which will be out in September, um, about uh, for-profit prisons. So it kind of um, deals with my undercover investigation. I also dive kind of deeply into the history of for-profit prisons, um, essentially from the American Revolution to the present. Um so I just kind of finished that. It'll be out in September, and now I'm, you know, getting back into some new stuff. So 
it'll it'll be it'll be a while before um you know there's a new story out but uh keep a lookout for it all right thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks Thanks for listening, everyone. We're officially on iTunes, so subscribe, listen, and rate the Deep Reporting Journalism Pod, or you can follow the SoundCloud channel, Deep Reporting Journalism Pod. And remember to head over to FirstAmendmentMedia.com to check out episodes from the Vote 2018 Election Pod and sign up for the Morning Rex newsletter. Follow us on Twitter on the handles at FirstAmendMedia and at Rex Carlin. That's at 1-S-T-A-M-E-N-D Media and at R-E-X-C-A-R-L-I-N for all the latest information on all of our content. I'm Rex Carlin and you've been listening to the Deep Reporting Journalism Pod.